And we are so grateful uh, that in Christ, all, uh, every spiritual blessing uh, in the heavenly places is ours. And so we have much to celebrate, don't we? Uh, even in, in the difficult times, even in the hard times, even in uh, the rough waters, we have reason to celebrate because nothing, as we learned from Romans uh, over the last couple of years, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's good news. <clears throat> that, that, that's, that's good news. And, and we have reason to celebrate and to give praise to our great God and our King. Let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus. Titus, we are in the last section in this short letter, uh, but oh so good, oh so good letter, uh, this letter here to Titus. When you're there, say I'm there. Yeah. All right. Titus chapter three is where we are. Titus chapter three, and we're beginning in verse eight. Titus chapter three, beginning in verse eight. Uh, Paul says this, in fact, uh, if I could move up just a little bit so that we know what he's talking about here in, in verse, uh, uh, verse three, uh, Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, you know, Paul loves these, these, th that little word, but. He, he, he loves just to, just to insert it right in the best part. We have this, this all of this bad news and things aren't going our, our, uh, the way they should be. We're making a mess of our lives, but, right? Remember in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we too also walked, carrying about the desires of our flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, but God. You, you know that part? And, and later on, Ephesians 2, we were, uh, we were uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcision, and we were cut off from the promises of God, and we were without God and without hope in the world. But now, you see, and you have this right here, too. We were foolish, uh, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. The word there for loving kindness is where we get our word philanthropy. <laughs> God is the great philanthropist. Oh, I love it. That's good stuff. Uh, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And now we get to this week's passage. The saying is trustworthy. 
Well, all that he just said here, everything he just said, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. I didn't say that, Paul did. So, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed uh, Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they lack nothing, literally, in order that they may lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And again, it's so that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. What a great way to end a letter. What a great way to end a letter. Let's pray that God would give us wisdom and instruction that we may not only hear, but also heed this great word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would indeed teach us from your word today. That you would make this uh, leap off the page for us. Lord, it's one thing to know grammar and to be able to understand how nouns and pronouns and so on, verbs and adjectives and adverbs work together to form a sentence and to communicate thought. Lord, it's one thing to do that. It's another thing for these thoughts and ideas and truths to drill down into the depths of our soul and, and dig roots and, and bear much fruit in and through us. I can't do that. I can't do it for myself. I can't do it for these, your people. Lord, that's something that only the Holy Spirit can do. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, show off. (laughs) Make yourself known among us today. Lord, I pray that your word would be so crystal clear that even those who do not believe in Jesus will leave out of here saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, I pray big things because you're a big God and you're able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. So have your way among us. Teach us, O great teacher. And change us as only you can. We thank you and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What difference does it make? What difference does any of this make? Have you ever asked yourself that? I know I've asked myself that over the years. What difference does this make? What difference does it make that 
that the God that is real, the God who lives, is a God who exists in three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, bound by love. What difference does that make? Why can't God be impersonal? Why can't God be one person? Why can't God be an essence or an aura? Right? Why can't God be in all of us? Why can't we all be God? What difference does it make? What difference does it make that the God who is, is a God who sends his son into the world to save sinners? What difference does it make that God, the God who is, justifies the ungodly? What difference does it make? What difference does it make that, that, that there is a spirit, a Holy Spirit, who comes inside of us and transforms us from the inside out? What difference does that make? What difference does it make that he binds together a people from every tribe and nation and language and, and he makes them brothers and sisters with God as their father? What difference does it make? What difference does it make that the one who hung on the cross is three days later rose from the dead and several weeks later ascended into heaven where he now sits at God's right hand and one day he is returning soon to judge the living and the dead and rescue his own where he will be with them forever as a husband with his bride. What difference does it make? By the way, all of those truths that I just rattled off are here in the book of Titus. They're all here in the letter of Titus. What difference does it make? So what? You may ask that question, especially in a culture like ours. After all, we say it's supposed to, these truths are supposed to change you to be a different type of person, a person who is kind, a person who, who cares about morals, a, a person who, who sees people in need and reaches out to meet those needs. But let's be honest, there are a lot of people who do those very things and do not believe anything that we teach. So what difference does it make? There are plenty of atheist philanthropists. There are plenty of atheist uh, 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 charities. There are plenty of hospitals that were started by atheists. There are plenty of schools to educate uh, uh, the next generation that were not started by Christians. What difference does it make? I know plenty of marriages that are going perfectly fine. Where the husband is not a believer and neither is his wife. And they've been married for several, several decades. They get on each other's nerves, mind you. But, 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 that's, but they, they live together and they are committed to one another. What difference does it make? And on the flip, we do know some Christians in our culture who are believers and profess all of the things that we teach here in the scriptures that don't seem to be living changed lives. It kind of looks like business as usual. Uh, I know of a, of a man who was uh, 
forced to resign from a Christian organization just recently um, because it was found out that he had been poisoning his neighbor's dog. True story. Weird story. (laughs) And he was the head of a Christian organization. We know pastors who have had to step down because of adultery. Because they cheated on their wives. We know folks who have been forced to step down because of extortion. Because of bribery. We know folks who love to play the political game. And will do whatever they can to to wine and dine and schmooze the folks, the powers that be, in order to get their way. We know all of this. So what difference does it make? Why do we care about these truths? Does it really matter that we should live some kind of way in accordance with these truths? That's what Titus has been all about. What Paul has been encouraging, urging this young pastor Titus. We've been looking at this week in and week out. All through this short three-chapter letter, Paul has been saying, your life and your doctrine matter. What you believe and how you behave matter. And they've got to be in sync. There's a word that we use for this in sync uh, life. And I I know, I know there's some of y'all already, as soon as I said that, y'all started going bye, bye, bye. And I don't mean that in sync. I mean like like actual, you know, working together, cohesiveness and and all of that. Um, What's the word? The word is integrity. Integrity. Y'all have heard that word integrity, right? Do you know that the root of the word integrity is actually a math word? Does anybody know what that math term is? Integer. What's an integer? Anybody know? What's an integer? It's a number. What kind of number? A whole number. That's important. An integer is a whole number. Integrity is when your whole life is on the same page. It's whole life living, right? I'm not one thing over here and a totally different thing over there. No, that's not integrity. Uh, that's a half number, <laughs> if you will. That's a that's a half life, which which is another term and a whole different conversation. But but it's a it's a it's, it's a whole life into in. I was about to say integer. Integrity is when all of your life is on the same page, walking in the same direction. And that's what he's been saying here. Don't don't say these truths and then turn around and live some other kind of way. That's not integrity. That's not the life. And don't 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 you can't try to live a good life but not believe these truths. It, it's not going to work it eventually is going to fall to pieces. And of course, we see that in our society over and over again. And sadly, we see it in the church over and over again. We must be on the same page. Life and doctrine, belief and behavior, integrity. That's what we're talking about. So Paul, in this letter, as he's wrapping all of this up, he's been talking about how the church needs to have a certain kind of leader in chapter 1. We've got to live in a certain way as elders. We, we can't just teach whatever. We can't just live however. We've got to have integrity. 
Our lives must match what we teach, okay? And that's what he says in chapter one. In chapter two, he then turns to all y'all, all of us here, and he says, here's how you're supposed to live your lives. And if you remember, he went down by, by age, broken up by age and gender. And so he says, older men are supposed to be dignified. They're not supposed to be the ones walking all around the place and everything, acting a fool and so on. They're supposed to be the, the grown-ups in the room. They're supposed to set the example right? I remember uh, some of the older folks, my, my grandparents, uh, you know, grand, uh, grandfathers, my papa, he would always dress up for church and, and, and he, had, he had different kind of hair. I didn't get his hair. My, my, my hair, God bless it. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not like his. His was slicked back and everything. And he had that, uh, he, he had a little bit of Native American in him. And so he was able to comb it and it's slicked back and all that. He was Jerry curling long before uh, Michael Jackson. And he was just doing all this stuff. And he just, he was just was a cool guy. He didn't play around. He didn't mess around with games and all that. When he came to faith, he just had a a, a, a demeanor about them. And, and Paul says, that's how older men are supposed to be. They're not supposed to be the ones acting a fool. They're supposed to be the ones setting the tone dignified, respectable, honorable. They're, they're, they show by their example what it means to follow Jesus. Older women, likewise, they're supposed to live in a certain way. They're supposed to, to uh, not only live, but, but to be able to take some younger women under their wing and say, hey, this is how you're supposed to live. It's interesting because he says in there that they're also not supposed to be uh, addicted to a whole lot of wine and stuff. And he only says that about the older women. I, I, y'all discuss that. I don't know what that's about. But, but, but he says that, uh, that, that you're, you're supposed to teach the younger women how to be workers at home and, and, and how to be submissive to your husbands and how, how to love your husbands and your children. Notice the emphasis on the home. By the way, don't think in 2023 American conversation, he's not saying there that women can't have jobs or anything like that. There was no such thing as workforces and women in the workforce and all of that back in those days. He's not making a contrast with that because it didn't exist in first century Roman culture, Greco-Roman culture. What he's talking about here in contrast is women who are neglecting their families. That's what he's talking about. He says, you need to be a hard worker in home, invest in your family, love your husband, love your children. Perhaps that's where the addicted to much wine is uh, was found, where you're not out clubbing and you're not out out, you know, uh, living up life and all of that. And you're, you're not paying attention to the responsibilities that God has entrusted to you. Wives, moms, you have a responsibility that, that just simply is in, is in, uh, incomparable. There's, there's no one else that can do that. I know because when mama goes out of town, it's a madhouse in the in the lock house i you know we're over here eating junk food and 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 you know the, you know the kids are like lord of the flies with ties tied around their heads and 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 all of this and mom comes back and and we're just like at her feet going thank you so much for for not abandoning us you know it's just the way it is god has gifted y'all with that that that's a it's a gift it's a stewardship it's a responsibility he says older women are to teach younger women that. And, and then he talks about the younger men and as if they didn't have a lot to focus on. He says, just be self-controlled. Can y'all just work on that? Um, you know, <laughs> that's the only thing he says. Just just get a hold of yourselves and, and that, that's good enough for us. And so, <laughs> but all of these things are how we're supposed to live. Chapter three is how we live in public. 
You know, as we heard last week from, uh, from Pastor Travis, we are to be submissive to our rulers and authorities. We're to be obedient, ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is how we live. This is how we live. The way we live as leaders, the way we each live in our interpersonal relationships to each other, the way we live in the outside world, all of those things matter. It does make a difference. What we teach, what we preach, does make a difference in our lives. And so as we come to our passage here, you see Paul sums it all up in verse 8. He says, these things, uh, he says, this, uh, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. They're not optional. We're, we, don't, we don't say these things with question marks. You know, would you, would you like to do that? Is this, is, maybe this is something you could think about doing sometime. No, that's not how we talk. This is how you live. That's what Paul wants. Insist on these things. And so it is my responsibility as we walk through the scriptures to do exactly what Paul commands, to insist that you live this way. Insist that you embrace these teachings about our great God and our Savior. Embrace the life that these truths produce. Embrace these things. I insist that this is how you live your life. In order to do that, there are three commands really here uh, that Paul is teaching Titus, and I think that he's intending for Titus to pass them on, and I believe that if that's the case, then it's something that we are to receive and we're to pass on as well as members of the same church. Okay? So what are these three things? First off, if we're going to live these changed lives and if we are going to have, if, it, if these truths are going to have a difference in our lives, then we must demand devotion. We must demand devotion. Look at verse 8 again. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. Why? So that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It's a clunky sentence, but it's a very intentionally clunky sentence. He does it on purpose. He says, I want you to devote yourselves. I want you, I'm sorry, to be careful to devote yourselves to good works. Okay? So, so there's, uh, let's look at the end. The end there is good works. Okay? And he's saying, I want you to do good works. But I want you not just to do good works, I want you to devote yourselves to good works. And in order to devote yourselves to good works, you've got to be careful to do it. Okay? In other words, it takes intention in order for you to prioritize good works. And that's exactly what he's saying here. When we teach these things and insist on these things, believers will prioritize good works. So in other words, it's, it's not our job as elders, it's not our job as the preachers and teachers here week in and week out to leave anything off the page. We can't do that. Because it's specifically by insisting on these things and teaching these things that these good works are produced in you. It's the word that does the work. 
Can you say that? It's the word that does the work. Yeah, it's like, it's like looking at a plant in a dark room with no light and you don't water it and you're going, I just don't understand why the thing is dying. Well, because you need sunlight and you need water and maybe some of that miracle grow stuff, you know, that I don't know anything that I'm talking about right now, but, but, but you, you know, you need that, that stuff that you shake on it and everything and, 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 and you love it and give it some TLC and, and all of a sudden that thing's going to start to grow. Well, the miracle grow, if you will, for the Christian life is the word of God. That's the miracle grow. And you need to live in the light of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And and as you live in his light, you walk uh, in him and, and, and you are fed and nourished by his word. You'll start to notice your life changing. I'm not doing things the way I used to do. I'm living life a little bit differently. You will not only start to live that way, but you'll start to prioritize those things. Those things will start to matter to you. I, I know all the time I, I, I talk to folks and uh, they would say, you know, long before I was a believer, I, w- I was a hellion. <laughs> you know, I was, I was just living it up, you know, and doing everything. You wouldn't believe the things that would come out of my mouth before I came to Jesus. You know, I was cursing like a sailor and, and, and all of these different things. I was, I was misogynistic and, 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 and all of that. And I would say, well, what happened? They said, well, Jesus is what happened. Jesus is what happened. And all of a sudden, I didn't want to talk that way anymore. I didn't want to act that way anymore. I, 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 I felt dirty doing those things. And I didn't want to feel that way anymore. I, I wanted to do what honors Jesus. I wanted to live in a way that glorifies him. Some of y'all know something about that, don't y'all? You know what it was like before you came to faith. I, I, I came to Christ as a, as a teenager, uh, and, and I was cocooned because, you know, my, my parents were, were Christians, and it was the 80s and 90s, and as one comedian said, that was like the most Christian time to be a Christian. And, uh, <laughs> and so there were all kinds of little things that I, I, I didn't do and all that, but there was a clear transformation for me. One thing in particular, I, I was constantly stepping on people and all of that. I was doing everything that I could to try to be popular, do everything I could to try to be the cool guy in the room, the cool guy in the school and all of these things. And I saw the carnage that I was doing, just just trampling on people and ruining uh, relationships, burning bridges and all of that. And something happened when I became a believer that all of a sudden I went from being about me stepping on everybody, trying to make it to the top, to going, what can I do to step down to be at the bottom because I love you more than I love my status? How did that work? That was not there in teenage Ranjur. But towards the end of my teenage years, all of a sudden, that became something that mattered to me. Why does it matter to me? What changed? Jesus is what changed me. Now, all of a sudden, that's a different thing for me. Now I find myself talking to students at the seminary and telling them, don't try to climb the ladder to make it up to the top. Get yourself off of the ladder and increase Jesus as you decrease because you will find great joy in being nothing and Jesus being everything. I never would have said that as a teenager. Jesus makes all the difference. Insist on these things. 
you'll find yourself prioritizing good works. Notice, not only is, is it uh, that one reason is that you find yourself prioritizing good works, but also we need to insist on these things. We need to demand this kind of devotion because these things at the end of verse 8 are excellent and profitable for people. The word for good in good works is the same word for excellent there in verse 8. It's the same word. And, and, and so he says these things are excellent or these things are good and they are profitable for people. You all know something about profits. You know businesses uh, when they have their earnings reports and 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 they talk about you know what they did in the quarter. You know we we uh, we lost a whole lot of money this quarter. Uh, you know things didn't exactly go the way that we were thinking and and all of that. And they don't get a round of applause, right? <laughs> you don't get a whole bunch of people clapping, going, "Yeah, way to go! At least you had fun, right?" <laughs> Here's a participation trophy or something. No, they don't, they don't get that. They, they sit and they go, well, hold on. What's going on here? And that's not the way that you're supposed to be running the business. You're supposed to be making profit. Well, here, the profit of the Christian life isn't financial. It's not monetary or anything like that. The profit that he's talking about here is the transformation of your lives. So you should be looking at yourself, maybe having kind of an earnings report, if you will, or a quarterly report where you examine your life and say, how has my life been different? What difference is Jesus making in my life? I, I, I challenged myself as a, at the beginning of the quarter that I was going to watch my mouth, that I was going to focus on, on speaking blessing to people and not curses to people, to, to, to encourage and to edify and not to tear down. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? Are you speaking in a way that honors Jesus and honors other people? Knowing what Jesus has done, the one who said, let there be light, is the one who says in 2 Corinthians 4, let light shine out of darkness. He now shines in our hearts. If he speaks so tenderly and, and miraculously and life-giving to us, isn't that supposed to influence the way that we talk to other people? When, when people wrong you, do you respond with, with all of the vengeance and vigilante justice that you can find in yourself? Or do you respond like our Lord who forgave you? How do we live? This is profitable for us. It's good for you to live this way. One of the things that I'm always concerned about in the public debates over justice is is that uh, we we have we we can't always figure out. I learned this from Batman. We can't always figure out uh, uh, the difference between justice and vengeance, right? It's 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 a tough thing, and and in our culture, you you find that getting conflated more and more, where there are people who are calling for justice, but what they're seeking is vengeance, and we got to be careful with that. One of the things that we learn from the scriptures also is it's really hard for us when it comes to bringing about justice. Not that we don't need it, not that it's not worth the fight. It's absolutely worth the fight. It's absolutely worth getting it right. But one of the problems that we have as we pursue, especially those who don't know the scriptures and don't and aren't guarded and guided by what the Bible has taught us, is that we tend to not or we tend not to know where to draw that line. 
And so we keep pushing and we keep pushing and we keep pushing and we keep pushing and we keep pushing until all of a sudden we're no longer talking about justice anymore. Now we're just talking about beating people down. We have to be careful with that. We have to be careful with that. Our Lord, in, 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 in a way that only he can, was able to mingle justice and mercy together so that he could go to the oppressor and he could bring judgment on them for the sins that they're committing on other people. And yet the very same God who can bring that judgment is the one who will save them if they call out to his name. How does he do that? He does it as only he can. What can we learn from that? Do we know what it means to love our enemies? Do we know what it means to love those who have hurt us? To extend uh, the love of Jesus, even as we're being firm and, 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 and boundaries and firm and consequences and all of these different things, and yet do we find our hearts still finding a way to, to love those who have wronged us? You say, how in the world am I supposed to live that way? How in the world is that supposed to happen? It's by living in these truths that we profess. It's by following the one who would lay down his life on the cross for his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what we learn from him. We learn from him how we live and we learn from him how to love good for us. It's good for us. And so, we so we demand devotion, if that's what it takes for our lives to change. Well, not only do we need to demand devotion, we also need to remove distractions. We got to remove distractions. Look at verse 9. He says in here, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Here he's focusing on the things that distract us. And then he's going to focus on the people who distract us in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So why should we remove distractions? First, we should remove distractions because they have no benefit. We remove distractions because they have no benefit. Look what he says at the end of verse 9. They are unprofitable and worthless. Notice in verse 8, these things are excellent and profitable. Verse 9, these things are unprofitable and worthless. Pay attention. Pay attention. There are certain things that if we allow them to come into our churches, if we allow them to come into our homes, if we allow them to come into our conversations, they will wreck us. He's not lying. I've seen it. I've seen churches that have crumbled to pieces over these types of things. Notice, he's not against disagreeing. It's not that we're all just a bunch of robots and we all nod the same way and we say yes to everything that happens. And, and all. No, that's not what he's talking about. We're allowed to disagree. We're allowed to see things differently. That's not his focus. His focus is on the things that we should agree on. 
And when somebody comes in and, and starts changing the list, starts messing it with it and everything and says, no, you need to worry about these things. This is the most important thing. If that is not what scripture has told us, then it's out of bounds, period. It's out of bounds. Foolish controversies. By the way, the word for foolish, I say it every time we get there because I just think it's fascinating, is where we get our word moron from, okay? So, so these moronic controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels. The word behind quarrels is where we, is a, is, is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a military term. It's battles, battles over the law. Now, I remember, I remember when I was uh, a young college kid and uh, Annie and I met at a Bible college uh, up in the Maryland, D.C. area, and, and we were there. And I tell you, we, I used to have so much fun, but those of you who know me know that there's a definite time where I go to bed. Um, you know, I, I can be up, I can roll when I was in my twenties, it was a little bit later than it is now. Uh, but, but I could roll and hang and everything. And then once that, that clock hits, you know, it's like the taco bell, you know, <laughs> bell, you know, bong time to go to bed. <laughs> and I just turn, and, all right, it was nice. It was real good conversation. I'm out and I just go to bed, but we would stay up for hours at night talking about election and predestination versus free will or talking about, you know, whose end times charts were the, were the right ones and talking about, you know, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and which ones, you know, are, are around and, and are there any that aren't around today? And we were going back and forth on all these things, cutting our teeth with this, with these doctrinal debates and so on. And, and we would be up late at night. It was a, it was a broader tent in terms of the college where we were at. And, and so you had folks from all kinds of different church traditions and we would just get there and we would, we were like, all right, let's go a few rounds. Let's do some. Yeah, this is fun. You know, it's, it, that's, that's can be okay. It can be healthy, but when it gets to the point where we're starting to split things up and I no longer see that person as a brother or a sister in Christ, and I no longer see my heart warming towards them with the love that the spirit produces, the love that comes straight from our great Lord and savior himself. When I find those things starting to wane, it's a different conversation. Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know what it's like when you go home during the holiday and you get the whole family around and you know what topics you can't talk about, right? We're not talking politics. We're not talking, you know, any, any of these types of things because we know the moment the conversation goes in there, it's World War III in the kitchen, right? We can't have that conversation. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, there are certain things that are just simply not good for you controversies that you're not going to solve <laughs> answers that you literally do not have. I know you may think you have, no, you don't. <laughs> well, if people would just believe like I, they have before and, <laughs> and it didn't work, you know, I mean, just let it go. It's okay. It's okay. But for the one who won't let it go, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division. They bring in their controversies, bring in their genealogies, bring in their dissensions, bring in their quarrels about the laws. For the person who stirs up division, by the way, the word for division is where we get our word heretic from. Notice, heresy isn't just what you believe. You can be a living heretic, living out heresy 
with your divisiveness. Because it's for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, strike one, strike two, strike three, have nothing more to do with them. Why? Because such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Pastor, that's not loving. Don't we welcome people? Aren't we supposed to be kind and gracious? Aren't we supposed to be forgiving? Yes. And we need to remove this person out from our midst in order for us to stay on track. Because they're, they're, they're sucking the love out of the church. They're, they're redrawing the lines so that we're no longer being kind and gracious towards one another. They're a threat to that very thing. You say, that's really hard. Yeah, it is. We don't, we don't do these types of uh, discipline, uh, disciplinary actions uh, in, a, in a jolly way. That's not what this is. We take it seriously because we care deeply about the health and we care deeply about the life of the body. Amen? You may have some folks that, you know, you, you know this about your, about your physical body. It, it, it functions kind of like this where you have, um, you know, you could be around a bunch of people. Maybe you've been like this before where you've been to a party or, or we've got graduations that are going on. You have something like this and, and, and you're sitting and you're just enjoying the ceremony. You're enjoying the event. And then you hear, <laughs> right. And the whole thing changes for you, doesn't it? Because now all of a sudden, you know, the guard is up <laughs> and, and, you know, you're in lockdown and you're just like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Don't you dare. You know, you're covering your mouth and all of this. Maybe you're even holding, <gasps> holding your breath, you know, to make sure you don't inhale that, you know, that virus, you know, or, or you inhale that germ or, or anything like that. It's been a traumatic time the last couple of years. I, I totally understand but, but you know what that's like because you know what happens when that comes in. You know what it's like when you go through your day and then you go to bed and right as you're going to bed, all of a sudden that throat starts to get a little scratchy. You felt that, haven't you? And you're just like, doggone it. I knew that that cough you know, was just going to projectile right into my system and, and everything. Man, you know, and you just, you feel it. And, and you know how hard it is once I heard that cough. You, you, know, how, <laughs> you know how hard it is once it's, once it's there, how hard it is to get out of there, you know. And, and it's everybody's self-conscious now. I, 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 that's so funny. Folks are coughing and they're like, I'm trying to hold it in. Don't, don't do it. Uh, but, but you know what that's like when you have that and it comes in and it, and it messes things up. Well, well, there are behaviors that function the same way in the body of Christ. There are viral actions that can, that can bring a whole lot of damage to the body of Christ. And that's why we need antibiotics, <laughs> if you will, is something even in the form of church discipline to be able to say, hey, if you're not going uh, to respect the body, if you're here to bring division and all of that, then we're going to have to ask you to leave. The antibiotic is not against you. The antibiotic is for your health. And we need to care for the health of the body. So we got to remove distractions. Lastly, we need to model dedication. We need to model dedication. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. 
All right, what's going on? Well, he says in verse 12, I, I, um, I, I'm going to send um, Artemis or Tychicus to you. Probably what this means is Titus's shift is over. All right. He's going to set things in order, just like Paul told him to in the letter to Titus. He's going to make sure that the church is up and running and functioning well and everything. And then Paul hasn't decided yet at the time of this writing, he's either going to send Artemis or he's going to send Tychicus. He doesn't know which one yet, but, but whoever he's going to send, that's probably going to be a tag out for Titus so that Titus is now able to leave the church. And he says, when you do, once you come over here to Nicopolis, I'm, I'm hoping to spend the winter there and I'd love to see you again, Titus. I'd love to see you face to face. Do your best to do that. And then he also says uh, in verse 13, do your best, he says it again, to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. It's long before, you know, uh, Motel 6s, long before Airbnbs and all of that, when you had uh, folks that were going around from place to place, itinerant preachers, church planters, and so on, missionaries, and so forth, they needed a place to stay. And it was good for them to find a church that was there in that area because we, they knew that if they went to that church, they would have their needs met. And that's exactly what Paul says here. Zenos and Apollos are coming over. They're going passing through town, but they're probably going to need a little pit stop. And so make sure when they come over to your area, make sure that he says there that they lack nothing. Okay. In other words, your responsibility, Titus, is to make sure that their needs are met. And then he says in verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. The word behind learn is, is also related to our word for disciple. Uh, let our people be discipled, if you will, to devote themselves to good works. The very thing he said in verse 8, he's repeating it now here. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Note, we are here to meet each other's needs. Do you see the networking going on here? You've got uh, Artemis or Tychicus, whichever one comes over. He says, I need you now to come over and spend the winter with me. I, I could really use your help over at Nicopolis, Titus. Why don't you come on over here? They'll, once they get there, you can get over here and we can be together again. They're meeting needs. No, Zenos and Apollos, hey, they're meeting needs. When they get into town, why don't you go and take care of them? And then lastly, the people there, they're meeting needs. Teach them to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful, which is the next thing. We're here to meet needs. We're also here to bear fruit. We're here to bear fruit. The good works that you produce, why is that such a big deal to us? Because that is the fruit that is produced by the teachings that we profess. We want you to be a fruitful person. We want Treasuring Christ to be a fruitful church where we see the, 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 the beauties of Christ all around us. We see what the Spirit is producing in, in our lives. We see what he's producing in our homes. We see what he's producing in our community groups. And he sees what we're producing as one corporate body. And then through us, what he's producing here in the triangle and all the way beyond to the ends of the earth. That's what this is supposed to be about. But we've got to function in a certain way. We've got to be a certain kind of culture in order for that to happen. But at the end, it's about meeting needs. I hear people all the time that say, just preach the gospel. Stop talking about loving the neighbors. Stop talking about all the needs that are going around. Stop talking about justice. Stop talking about all these things. Just preach the gospel. Well, you know, a funny thing happens when we preach the gospel. 
lives start to change. (laughs) Needs start to be met. Hearts start to be warmed. Our eyes start to be more zeroed in on what's going on around us. You say you just preach the gospel, but you know, we do that and we start producing people who live like the gospel tells us to live. In other words, just preach the gospel is not the solution. Just preach the gospel is what we've already been doing. Now we need to produce what the gospel calls us to produce. And so we love one another. We meet meet needs, bear fruit. And then finally, in this last section here, this last verse, verse 15, we're here to share God's grace. Look what he says. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. So you see this reciprocal thing. All who are with me greet you. Greetings are what family does, what we do to one another. Hey, I just want to let you know I said hi. Hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you, man. I love you. Keep on going. Keep on serving Jesus. That's what family does. And as you are being greeted, he says, I want you to greet those who love us in the faith. Hey, I just want you, wanted to let you know that, uh, that, that, uh, that Paul, says, Paul says hi. Paul says he loves you. (laughs) Paul says he loves you right back. Keep up the good work. Keep serving Jesus. And notice all of that is wrapped up in that last line. Grace be with you all. The same grace in chapter 2 that has appeared, bringing salvation for all men. Telling us to deny unrighteousness and ungodly living and, and so on. And that we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace produces that. Grace produces a transformed life that produces good works that ultimately wind up being a conduit of grace to other people. Isn't that exactly what we want from each one of us? (laughs) To live like this. Back in the year 125, there was a man by the name of Aristides. Aristides wasn't a very well-known guy, um, but he wrote a letter that has survived to this day. It's called the Apology. And that's not apology in the sense of, I'm so sorry. That's not what what that is. Apologia in the Greek means defense. And so he's giving a defense to uh, the king. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember who the king was. I, I, I blanked on who it was. Um, I want to say it was Trajan, but I might be wrong on that. Uh, but but he, he wrote to a Roman king, and he's giving a defense of Christianity. And I wanted to read this section. It's a little bit lengthy, so bear with me here. But I wanted you to hear how Aristides talked about the Christians, his, his contemporary Christian brothers and sisters in the year 125, okay? So a little bit less than a century after Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, but the Christians, O king, while they went about and made search, have found the truth. And as we learn from their writings, they have come nearer to truth and genuine knowledge than the rest of the nation's. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and earth, in whom and from whom are all things, 
to whom there is no other God as companion, from whom they receive commandments which they engraved upon their minds and observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Wherefore, they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near to them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. And whatsoever they would not that others should do unto them, they do not to others. And of the food which is consecrated to idols, they do not eat, for they are pure. And their oppressors, they comfort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies, and their women, O king, are pure as virgins, and their daughters are modest. And their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness in the hope of a recompense to come in the other world. Further, if one or other of them have bondmen or bondwomen or children, they love towards them. They per, uh, sorry, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They don't worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over them as a brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, Each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. They observe their precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and every hour they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindnesses toward them. And for their food and their drink, they offer thanksgiving to him. And if any righteous man among them passes from the world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort his body as if he were, uh, he were setting out from one place to another near. And when a child has been born to them, they give thanks to God. And if moreover it happened to die in childhood, they give thanks to God the more. As for one who has passed through the world without sins. And further, if they see that any one of them dies in his ungodliness or in his sins, for him they grieve bitterly and sorrow as for one who goes to meet his doom. Such, O king, is the commandment of the law of the Christians, and such is their manner of life. My question is, do we look like our ancestors? Can people look at at treasuring Christ, just come in and look in and observe the way we live and be able to say a list like this? This is otherworldly. 
not something that we can do in and of ourselves, something only the Spirit does as He produces it. How does He produce it? It's through the doctrines that we teach. We teach the Word. We stay in the Scriptures. We week in and week out, day in and day out, meditate on what our Lord has done. And we lay on our faces before Him and say, God, please make it real to us. Make it real in us. Produce this in us as a church. Produce this in me as one of your children. And then we go in faith, trusting that God is able to do what only God can do. As he does, week in, week out, moment in, moment out. Let's rejoice together, brothers and sisters. Our God is doing something because this is the difference that his gospel makes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with longing heart. Longing that our neighbors would be able to look in and see the difference that you make in us. But Lord, in order for that to happen, we pray that we would be devoted devoted to the good works, devoted to the truth that your good works produce. And they're devoted to the, uh, the, the, the good works that your truth produces. And that we would remove the distractions that are among us. It's so easy to be distracted in this world. Father, I pray that you would give us focus. Focus on your word. Focus on the whole counsel that you have given to us. And may we be careful to follow all that you have commanded. And Lord, I pray that we would show for one another what it looks like to be dedicated to this. And Father, we would be a people that are eager to meet needs. or People that are eager to bear fruit. We're people that are eager to share your grace. What a difference the gospel makes. Make it so in us, Lord.